John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18 is our passage for this morning. And today I want to begin with the same question with which we will end, which is this. What are you holding on to? What is it that you hold on to? When things get difficult, when questions come, when conflict arises, what is it that you hold on to? We all have something, sometimes many things, that we, we just grab onto. We say, this, this is my comfort, this is my joy, this is my hope. Sometimes it's, it's our own control. I've got this, everything's falling apart, but I'm okay, I'm in control, I can handle it. And that's what we hold on to. And often in situations like these, something comes along that kind of pries open our fingers to say you're not nearly in control like you thought you were. Sometimes we hold on to feelings. Certain emotions that come into our mind, certain thoughts, whether it be bitterness, anger, rage. I'm just so mad, and that's our coping mechanism, to be mad at ourselves or somebody else or society or whatever it may be. Sometimes we hold on to relationships. As long as I have so-and-so, I'm okay. They comfort me. They're right there with me. Until, at times, they're not. What we hold on to has to be secure. Something nothing can change. And it must be something we are absolutely certain about. As we enter into the next few passages in the Gospel of John, we are looking at a particular truth that I would dare say is the single most important truth in all of Christianity. It is the truth upon which our faith rests. It is the truth that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in this world. It is the proof of everything we preach and believe. It is so important that the Apostle Paul writes that if this one thing is not true, then everything we believe and preach as Christians is useless and deceptive, and we should be pitied for believing any of it. But then Paul also says that since this one thing is true, we can hold on to the truth that our faith is not in vain, We can hold on to the truth that this life is not all there is. And we can know for certain the truth that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has conquered sin and death. We're talking about the absolute historical truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We've covered so far in John his his birth, his life. We talked about his arrest, his trials before the Jewish leadership and then the Roman leadership. We talked last week about his crucifixion, being nailed to the cross. The punishment that should have been ours for our sin and he took our place and died for us. And so now today, we pick up with the resurrection, this beautiful hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So I want to begin with verses 1 and 2 and look at this conflict that's going to go on when Jesus' followers come to the tomb and find something they did not expect. 
And it starts something in their minds, some questioning, what in the world is going on? And as we look at that, this conflict reveals what they are holding on to. And it helps us to ask ourselves the question, what are we holding on to? And specifically, how are we holding on to Jesus Christ? Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter, the other, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. This morning, Mary has a plan. And other Gospels tell us she's not alone. She's gone to the tomb with other women. And they're just going to pay respects to the body of Christ. He was hastily buried and they want to make sure everything is done properly. They're not going to see a risen Savior. They have no concept of that. There's, There's no inkling in any of these passages that there's some hope. Maybe he won't be there. Maybe he'll be alive. It's just the opposite. They were expecting to find the one that they loved still dead and buried. John, as always, adds some interesting little tidbits that we need to grab onto and say, why? Why is he telling us this? One of the phrases, while it was still dark. Now that's helpful. It gives us a time of the day, but it gives us more than that. Because darkness in John is always more than just being dark outside. It's being lost in their thoughts. It's being confused. It's lacking belief and understanding. So as they are going to the cross, John is helpfully telling us they don't get it yet. It's dark. It's always dark. When Nicodemus went, it was dark. Got dark at the crucifixion. There's something going on that they don't understand. So it helps us to understand their mindset as they go to the cross. Mary's going. Because she wants to be near the one that was her teacher, her rabbi, her Lord. The one she thought would save them, rise up, become the Jewish Messiah. And everything that entailed. And while he's gone, and it seems like that hope is dashed. I think like so many of us, she just wants to be as near as she can. She wants to do whatever she can. She trusted That Jesus would change the world. But then he died a gruesome and shameful death. And in her conflict and her confusion, she and many others in this situation are wondering, how can anything good come out of this? But then, there's a new conflict. She shows up at the tomb and sees something she did not expect to see. The stone is rolled away. And she doesn't know what to make of this. And so look at how she processes this. This helps us to understand her mindset. Number one, she goes to get help. She she doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know what she can do about it. So she goes to get help. She goes and gets Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which as we know from the rest of the gospel, is John's way of identifying himself. This is the gospel writer, John and Peter. These two disciples are going to go to the tomb. But she also, in verse 2, she's trying to make sense of it all. She takes what she understands, overlays it on a situation she doesn't understand, and look at what she says. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, 
and we don't know where they have put him. She's coming up with this. We do this all the time when we face conflict. We take what we think we know, we put it on what we don't know, and we make a guess. I'm not trying to fault her for it, but it is something to learn that we need to be careful that we don't jump to conclusions when we get in conflict. She believes they, whether it's Jewish leaders or the Romans, somebody has done something because this doesn't make sense. Where is Jesus? So here's the conflict of this passage. Jesus has died on the cross. Their hopes, it appears, died with him. Their hopes of serving the new king sent by God are crushed. Their hopes of having their lives and the world changed forever are dead. So Mary comes up with a solution that makes sense to her. They've taken him. And now we're going to see as Peter and John come to the tomb, what they do with this conflicting information. So let's look at verses 3 through 10. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Again, there's some really interesting details. And and some of this, I think, is because we're hearing from the eyewitness. We're hearing from John himself, who was there, and he's telling us some things that are important to him. And one of the first things that he includes is both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I, I just have to wonder, around the campfire, in the years to come, if this was one of those things like, Peter, I beat you. I don't know. That's not the theologian or, or, or Bible student in me. That's like, maybe it's just the guy in me. I don't know. But I just think, Maybe this was just one of the things that that they teased each other. And then I I wonder if Peter's like, yeah, but I actually went in. So there, uh, (laughs) scaredy cat. I don't know. But again, understand we're dealing with an eyewitness. This is John, later in his life, writing this down. A testimony as to what happened, so that we will believe. Verse 5, he says he reaches the tomb first, but he doesn't go in. Maybe he's not sure what to do. Maybe he's afraid. I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but for some reason, he hangs back and he's just sort of pondering. And I've always gotten that impression of John, that he was somebody that just sort of took everything in and really molded over. Peter is the exact opposite. It says, Peter came along behind him. Again, I think John's taking a little dig, you know, slow poke there. Came along behind him, but he goes straight into the tomb. This is so typical Peter. Don't think, just act. Now, who runs into a tomb? I mean, this, he's not thinking about this at all. But at the same time, remember what Peter is dealing with. 
Remember the, the things that might be going through his mind. As he takes this action, there are things that have probably been going through his mind for several days now that he can't get out. He gave up everything for Christ. Everything. To follow him. Peter was the one, Matthew 16 tells us, that he declared, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What a declaration. Peter's the guy that, as Jesus is getting arrested, he takes out his sword and he cuts off the the servant's ear and he's like, yeah, let's go. We're going to save our Savior. What a foolish thing to think. We're going to save him. And Peter or Jesus says, stop. Put it away. And, And Peter stands there and watches his king, son of God, who is all-powerful. He's seen what he can do, and he watches him do nothing as he is arrested. He watches Jesus do nothing as he is nailed to a cross. And he watches Jesus do nothing as he dies. And as this is going on, And it looks like everything Peter has come to believe in is falling apart. Peter takes matters into his own hands. And when he is challenged or questioned, weren't you with him? Aren't you a disciple? Peter shows us what he holds on to. His own actions. He says, "Uh uh-uh. I don't know the man. So here he is, running to the tomb Of the one he denied. Because he's heard from Mary, the tomb's open. I wonder if he was excited or terrified or both. What does this mean? So he runs straight into the tomb to figure it out. Now John doesn't tell us Peter's response. Doesn't tell us anything about what Peter's thinking in this moment. What he believes or doesn't believe. What he does tell us is what he sees. Verse 7 gives us a description of what he sees. The, The grave clothes are there. They're sitting right there. The body would have been encased in spices. We read about that last week. To help not necessarily preserve the body so much as to cut down on the smell. Wrap up the body, not like an Egyptian mummy. This is very different, but just enough to hold the spices in place around the body and wrap up the head as well. So we have these strips of linen, and they're still in place. The cloth was that was wrapped around the head was lying right where the head was. Now understand what's going on here. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and he's still wearing all this. And he kind of, I don't know if he waddled out or what, but he came out somehow and they had to take these things off of him. This is a completely different picture. This is not the scene of somebody stealing a body, unwrapping it and leaving these things behind. They would have been in messy piles, plus if you were going to steal a body, you wouldn't do that because, ew. So that's not what's going on here. It's also not the scene where somebody woke up because they weren't quite dead yet and and they sort of woke up in a, a haze and they came out of the tomb. Because if that's what was going on, they wouldn't have carefully unwrapped it and carefully laid it right back where it was. The picture that is being described here, these details that are so simple but crucial, tell us that this is a scene 
where the body simply moved right through those grave clothes because he didn't need them anymore. Because he rose from the dead. This is one of those details. It's so crucial, but so simple. It is one of the many proofs that Jesus actually died and actually rose from the dead. Because there's many other ways this could have happened except this one. And then we see what John does in verses 8 and 9. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. John sees exactly what Peter saw. And that is so crucial because in the Jewish mindset, how did something have to be confirmed? Two witnesses. Had to be. That was the legal confirmation that this was true. And so we have the record of two eyewitnesses that this is true. And I have to wonder, John later in his years, he traveled all over preaching and teaching these things. I believe he was familiar with the other gospel writers and their gospels. But, but at some point he, he sits down and he says, I want to write what I saw I'm going to write my gospel so that we will believe. He says that later in the gospel. This is why I wrote this. So that you will believe. And I wonder as he writes this moment. And and the images and the feelings flood back into his mind. Remembering going into that tomb. Remembering what he saw. And he pens these words. He saw and believed. And I imagine a tear falling from his eye on the page when he thinks that was the moment I really believed in Jesus Christ. And then what's really interesting is what he tells us next. Verse 9, and again, remember, this is autobiographical. He's telling us what he knew and what he didn't know. So he just said... I believed, and then he says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is so helpful. I meet so many people with questions about Jesus Christ. Good questions, most of them. Just a heart that wants to know. So many people saying, I can't really believe until I have this answered. I have to have this answered. You tell me this answer. And then, of course, you try to show it to them and tell them, well, I don't know. What about this? And suddenly it's another question. This was not a light bulb moment of a profoundly educated person that went, aha. Based on what I'm seeing, everything that I just learned makes completely complete sense. Now, this puts it all together. Therefore, I will believe because it all makes sense now. This is somebody that even though they didn't understand, still believed. I've told people on numerous occasions that come to me and say, well, I have these questions, I have these questions, I have these questions. I say, look, take your questions, put them in a suitcase, And follow Jesus Christ. Because he's the one with the answers. Whether he gives them to you or not is up to him. But he has them, so follow him. This is John packing his suitcase full of questions and saying, I'm in. That's my Savior. Now later, 
All this information is going to come in that helps and bolsters and puts a foundation under his faith and he's going to get it and he's going to be able to point to Old Testament prophecies and he points some of those out in his gospel. But in this moment, it was enough to see he's not dead. He has risen. I love that John puts that in there. Verse 10 says the disciples go back to where they were staying. I bet those were some really interesting conversations. But John stays in the scene at the tomb. And we see Mary. Verses 11 through 18. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. At some point, after telling the disciples, after telling Peter and John what she had initially seen, that the tomb was open, she evidently went back to the tomb. And we have this beautiful scene of this woman hurting crying, loving her Savior, doing everything she can to just just be there, to do anything possible. And it's fascinating that John records this event at all. Because just as I said, in, in Jewish law, everything had to be confirmed on the account of two witnesses. It is equally understand, or important to understand not a single one of those witnesses could be a woman. She was ineligible to testify in court because of her gender. The Jewish people, and even the Romans, that would have heard this account later, would have scoffed at this. If Jesus was so great, if he really wanted to establish his resurrection, he would never have appeared to a woman first. And I love this about our Savior. Why did Jesus appear to Mary first? Sure, the apostles had seen this, can confirm he's not in the tomb, but he shows up first to Mary. I think there's one key reason. Jesus doesn't care at all what our culture thinks. Doesn't care. He does what he does because of who he is. And also, frankly, because although throughout the ages... People love to accuse Christians of being this male-dominated and female-oppressing religion. The truth as set forth in Scripture is the opposite. Here we see Jesus loving this woman. 
And in a culture where women were treated like property, Jesus treats them with dignity. She shows up at the tomb. She looks inside and she sees two angels. It's important to understand that angels in Scripture, the word angel in in Greek simply means messenger. That's all it is. Just messenger. Spiritual messengers, to be sure. Not normal messengers. Not the mailman running around, hey, I got a postcard for you. This is somebody from God, but, but that's their role. They are a messenger. They are also, and it's important to understand this too, rare in Scripture. There's no implication or understanding in Scripture that you should pray for an angel, that that you have an angel on your shoulder, that you have a guardian angel. These are rare in Scripture. When God was doing something momentous and He wanted to make sure His people didn't miss it and to know that this message was from Him with absolute certainty, then He would send an angel. And the angel asks her a question. Why are you crying? And I think this is a question that begins to get to this idea of what are you holding on to? What is it that hurts? What is it you were hoping for? What is the conflict that's going on? Things are not what she expected. She wanted to pay her respects. And now, because things are going horribly wrong again, she just wants to know what's going on. Can somebody just tell me where they have put the body of my Savior? She wants to hold on to what she remembers about Jesus. He was a comfort to her when he was there. Verse 14, Jesus is right there. But in her grief and being overwhelmed, she doesn't even recognize him. This is such a a good picture of something we need to learn. So often we're confronted with something that doesn't match with what we understand. That something we don't get. And and she can't accept that it's Jesus right there. Now, I'm not trying to beat her up here. I mean, this is a hard, hard situation. But I do think there's something to apply to us. We need to be careful. Sometimes we just hold on. Well, I know this, and I know this, and I know this. And God's like, I'm doing this. And we go, no. This is right there. And again, he asks the question. But he adds to it, why are you crying? But then he adds to it, who is it you're looking for? The true answer to that question is that she's looking for a dead Savior. She's looking for the body of of the man that she followed. She became a disciple, a follower, a learner. She trusted in him and what he was going to do. She expected to see his body and to pay her respects. She thinks he's the gardener and just wants to go wherever Jesus' body is so she can get it back, I assume, so she can take it and bury it properly. Because somebody is disrespecting the body of her Lord. And I love verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And I just wonder what it was that opened her eyes. Was it a miracle that somehow that opened her eyes and she understood? Or was it just the tone of voice of her teacher that had said her name over and over again? And there's something about it that made her realize, oh, it's him. And she cries out, Rabboni, teacher, 
a term of respect that tells her, or tells us rather, about their relationship. And people love to blow these things out of proportion in Scripture. She was his disciple, a learner, a follower. And she uses that word, Rabboni, teacher. And then we come to verse 17. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is a very difficult verse. The Greek is difficult. The understanding of it is difficult. Sometimes, and maybe in your Bible, it's translated, don't touch me. I don't think that's a good translation. Uh, partially because later on, he's, he's very willing to have the disciples. He invites them, come, touch my side, touch my hands. I want to prove to you it is me. So I don't think that's what's going on here. He also says, I, I have not yet ascended to the Father. I don't think this is like, oh, whoa, whoa, resurrection's not done yet. Hold on, still in process. Give me a moment here. Got to get my act together. I don't think that's what's going on either. I believe that at that moment that she understood who he was. She just grabbed him. Maybe fell at his feet and just grabbed around his feet. And she's holding on. My Savior, he's back. I've got him. And she won't let him go. I'm just holding on to him. And he's like, Mary, it's not the time for holding on. I've got a job for you. When he says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. The clearest understanding of this is that he's talking about his ascension. There is a time we understand between the the death, burial, and resurrection, and then there's 40 days before he ascends back to the Father. Mary was so happy, I believe, in this moment. Things are going to go back the way they were. Our rabbi, Jesus, he's back with us. We're going to go back to hanging out in people's homes and teaching and preaching and walking around the countryside and teaching. It's all back the way it was. That's her comfort. That's what she holds on to. And Jesus is saying, that's not. I'm back, but not that way. He's letting her know he's going away. And in the meantime, now is not the time for holding on to what makes her comfortable. It is the time to get the news out. He is risen. So that's exactly what Mary does in verse 18. He goes and tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. So I ask you again, what do you hold on to? What do we hold on to to give us comfort? Because what we hold on to can change what we expect and it can even change how we interpret what we experience. It's good to hold on to Jesus as a comforter. It is good Mary was not wrong in that, but it was incomplete. Too often we hold on, hold on to Jesus only as a comforter. He's there when we need him. He makes us feel better. He shows us how to be a better person. And there are so many people that claim to be Christians that this is why they hold on to Jesus. And this is it. It makes me feel good. It gives me something to get through the day. And that's good. I'm not saying that's wrong. Where it becomes wrong if that's the only reason you hold on to Jesus. Jesus is more than just a comfort in this life. He is the risen King 
who reigns eternally in the presence of God the Father. He has conquered sin and death and promises eternal life to all who believe. That needs to be the source of our comfort. Not just how we feel when we come to church and are around other Christians, how we feel when a certain song is played. It's not just about how we feel. We must hold on to who Jesus truly is. We should hold on to Jesus. But let him challenge your expectations and assumptions. Hold on to him as the truth that sometimes you're not going to understand. Hold on to him as the one who will at times lead you into uncomfortable situations for the cause of his kingdom. And hold on to him as your Lord and Savior who has gone through the cross for you, risen from the grave, conquering sin and death and promising the assurance of salvation through what he has done and eternal life if you hold on to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, challenge us. The truth of the resurrection confronts our expectations and understandings. It is the linchpin in our faith. And if it is removed, everything falls apart. But as we look at the resurrection, too often we want to say, nah, that can't be. That doesn't make sense. It's got to be explained in some other way. But the explanation is that Jesus really is who he says he is. And Father, as we think about what we're holding on to, I pray that the answer above all other answers is that we are holding on to a risen Savior. Confirmed by these eyewitnesses. Demonstrated in this beautiful interaction between Him and Mary. And as we come with our own questions, our own tears, our own concerns, I pray that the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done We'll cut through all of that. That like John, we will see, we will read, we will hear, and we will believe, even with questions still lingering. Because you are God and we are not. And there will always be things we have questions about. But we can always turn and hold on to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.